Last time we got together, we discussed relapse, right? Anybody recall that relapse discussion? Mm -hmm. And so I recommend for everybody, if you haven't already done something like this, but put together a written relapse prevention plan. And it's as easy as just doing this. Write down five reasons that matter to you to be sober. Write down five people alive or dead that prefer you to be sober. And then write down five things that you can do instead of getting high if you have a very strong urge or craving to get high. It's always better to have a plan. Isn't it famous saying not having as a plan is a plan for failure? Something clever like that, right? Because if you have a plan, you have a way of implementing in a crisis situation. If someone pulls out some alcohol, heroin, or cocaine, you want to get away from that person. You don't want to get involved with a debate. Why is it bad to debate with a person? Well, should I or should I not? Why is that a bad place to be for a recovering person? Trick yourself right back into it. Yeah, right? Man, addiction only has to be right one time. You have to be right every time to fight it, right? I mean, so relapse, unlike a diet where you can eat a cheeseburger one day and make up for that for the rest of the week, addiction doesn't kind of work like that, you know? If you do crack on Monday, you can't compensate from that by going to five meetings on Tuesday. Is making sense? Right. And so addiction is really bad in that way because it's unforgiving, unlike a diet where you can kind of overall kind of shift things through. So as we take relapse very seriously, a lot of programs really fall short in not covering relapse. And so most people that I work with already are doing a relapse prevention plan with me, so I don't cover it too much in recovery college. But it's very, very important to have a plan to be successful. And so you guys know about intherooms.com, right? Website for people from all the world that are staying sober. And, and AA and NA have their own website programs. Um, there's so many support groups on Facebook now as well. And... Um, just finding a way to be healthy. People that stay sober tend to do a couple of things, right? They tend to do something physical, whether that's going to be um, yoga, whether it's going to be running, whether it's going to be lifting weights but, or team sports, but doing something physical, right? They also tend to do something mental. Like they tend to read literature that's positive, like you know, self-discovery literature, right? Uh, literature about addiction, literature about becoming a better person, right? Self-improvement stuff. And they also tend to also develop themselves spiritually. It doesn't have to be by going to a church, but it can be, right? It can be by doing um, all kinds of meditations, finding out who your higher power is, developing that uh, kind of connection with your higher power. And so those three things together really seem to affect um, a person's ability to stay sober over a period of time. You can't take an NA meeting with you home at night, right? But you can take your spirituality with you. And another thing that I always recommend to people, you'd be surprised, but Pray for the desire to get high to be removed. If you believe in any kind of higher power, right, any kind, whether it's going to be karma as your higher power. You guys recall a story about the girl that had no higher power? Anybody else recall that story? All right. Tell the story one more time, Peter, is it too much? Too much. Too much? We're going to skip it then. But next time, we'll talk about that, right? So time can be your higher power. If, for example, something really, really bad happened to you in your, in your childhood and your father was a complete piece of shit, and so someone says, well, how do you believe in Jesus? And you say, well, my father believed in Jesus and he raped me over ten times, so I'm not really feeling the whole Jesus thing. And so what about time? Time will help me heal. Time will never hurt me. Time is always there for me, right? And time is a constant that can be trusted. So a person made time their higher power. So whatever your higher power is going to be, you can pray for your higher power to remove the desire to use. So why is it that some people won't actually pray that prayer? Anybody have a theory on that? Why would someone not say, higher power, remove the desire to get high from me? Not done yet. 
Right? And if I pray that prayer, right. Some people tell you they don't want to itch, but they love scratching. You know what I mean? Like, why do you keep scratching? Oh, I hate, I hate this itch. Why do you, why you keep on scratching? Right? The Buddhist view is that it's better to have no itch than to scratch at all. It's not healthy to be constantly tempted with the desire to get high, the desire to smoke weed, the desire to drink. It's a lot peaceful state to be in where you have no urge or craving. But it takes a lot of work to get to that point. Uh, in general, people can be at that point of no urges and cravings at about 100 days sober. It's not uncommon when you get to about 90 days plus where you don't even want to get high. The magical moment takes place when you've gone through an entire day and you're about to put your head down on the pillow and all of a sudden you recall, I forgot to think about getting high today. Like my day is so normal and so busy and so like, like a normal human being day, I forgot to entertain the thought to drink, smoke weed, shoot heroin because I'm actually in a normal state of mind. Is that amazing? Mm-hmm. Any comments or questions so far about those ideas? So we talk about the ability to change addiction, this willingness to change, the ability to change, and the readiness to change. And you have to be willing, able, and ready. And the acronym is WAR. And so a lot of people will tell you, you know, for example, a guy comes to me and he says, I smoke cigarettes every day. And I have emphysema. And my doctor told me today, if I keep smoking, I'm going to die. So I asked him a question. Sir, is it very important for you to stop smoking? Right, The willingness factor. Yes, yeah, the most important thing in my life. And I say, okay, how do you feel about your ability to stop smoking? He says, well, I always set goals and I always achieve them. I'm very consistent about that. Fantastic. Readiness factor. How do you feel about your sense of urgency to stop smoking cigarettes? When do you want to start? How about starting today? And the guy looks at me and he goes, nope, I'm not going to stop until basketball season is over. So where's our weakness and our change? In the sense of urgency, right? So my job is to make this a sense of urgency to be a little bit stronger in the person, right? But the guy comes to me and says, I smoke cigarettes every day. I got emphysema. I go, okay, heard this before. Okay, if I smoke again, I will die. Okay, sure. How's import- how important is it for you to stop smoking? It's the most important thing in my life. How do you feel about your ability to stop smoking? Well, I always tend to set goals but never seem to follow through. I always seem to follow short, fall short. And it really kind of bothers me. I can't kind of set something and achieve it. Okay, well, how do you feel about your sense of urgency? When do you want to stop smoking? Well, I want to stop right now. So where's the weakness with this person? In their confidence. And it becomes my job to build their confidence up. Is that making sense? So willingness and ability and readiness are all major factors in people changing. So let's talk about Stockholm Syndrome. I'm going to do that handout first. You guys seen it before. I apologize. But it's a classic. It ties into addiction. It also ties into a whole bunch of other concepts as well. Has anybody ever heard this idea or concept called Stockholm Syndrome before? Okay. When it's a syndrome, it's not officially a disease, but it's got a pattern to it, and it's got uh, some symptoms to it as well. And symptoms oftentimes over time become diseases, right? So we need a volunteer to read um, the first page, Understanding Stockholm Syndrome. Who wants to read? Thank you, sir. For six days in August 1973, thieves, Jan, Eric, Olsen, and Clark Olsen. Yeah, all these weird Scandinavian names, yeah. right? So Olsen. Olsen and the Olufsen, I think, right? Yeah. Held four Stockholm Bank employees hostage at gunpoint in a vault. When the victims were released, their reaction shocked the world. They hugged and kissed their captors, declaring their loyalty even as the kidnappers were carted off to jail. 
They insisted that the kidnappers should receive the lightest sentence possible and advocated for their release. Yeah, this response is not logical. Let me ask you guys a question. If someone held you against your will for six days in a bank vault, right? Imagine you're probably eating shitty food, right? No shower, no clean clothes, and someone's got a gun to your head. What would be a healthy response once you're out of that bank vault? What should you have said to the police about those people? Yeah. Lock those fuckers up forever. They've ruined my life. I probably got PTSD, not to see Raj for a year, right? <laughs> right? Okay, so this is not normal. Please continue. Right. People suffering from Stockholm Syndrome come to identify with an, even, with an even care for their captors in desperate attempt to make sense of this the mistreatment. Yeah, so they have a desperate attempt to make sense of their mistreatment. It occurs in the most psychologically traumatic situations. Often hostage situations are kidnappings, and the effects usually do not end when the crisis is over. In, in these cases, victims continue to defend and care about their captors even after they escape captivity. Syndromes of Stockholm Syndrome have also been identified in the slave-slash-master relationship. In battered spouses' cases, in members of destructive cults, and... Yeah, the house slave loves his master. Does anybody recall back in the days of slavery who the abolitionists were? So the abolitionists were Christian people that were completely against slavery. They wanted to abolish slavery, right? And the abolitionists were so serious about their commitment and belief, they're willing to risk their lives to make that happen. They'd actually help slaves buy their freedom, and then the slave escape, they're part of the Underground Railroad that helped slaves escape all the way to Canada, where they would be free. So who do you think these abolitionists who were very spiritual, caring Christians, who do these people really begin to upset? Uh, slave owners. owners, right? We're making a lot of money off this fucking racket, right? We got a hustle here. We got free labor. We can mistreat anybody we want. I mean, hell, Thomas Jefferson even had sex with his slave, right? And had kids with her, right? Who wants to add party to end, right? And so at some point they decided, hey, we got to you know, have a way to defeat the arguments of the abolitionists. So they would have these conferences or these meetings in a town square. They'd invite two or three hundred people into a town square. They'd say to people, hey, you guys are against slavery. How can you even be sure about it? You've never been a slave. You never owned a slave. Let's bring a slave to the podium and ask him how he feels about slavery. So oftentimes they would bring a house slave, not the field slave, because the field slave got a kind of a raw deal, living out in the dirt and all that, but the, field, the house slave lived in the master's basement, got a better deal, eat the master's food scraps, a little bit warmer there, right? And so the man comes to the podium, and what do you think he begins to say? I love slavery, I love my master, it gives me a sense of purpose and duty, this is a fantastic thing, please don't get rid of slavery, where would I go, where would I stay, I have no place to go, I have no job, and it would be a horrible thing. Well, your first thought when someone says that is, well, he has to say that shit because if he doesn't, he's going to go back and get a beating. But that's not actually the case. What's happening is he's internalized his own oppression. Imagine if someone was to shackle you up and handcuff you up, take you away from your village and say, you are now my property. If you actually realize what that means, you might have a complete fucking mental breakdown. So what your mind does to prevent a breakdown, it rearranges reality. In this new reality, being a slave may not be so bad. In this new reality, one day you're going to be free. In this new reality, maybe you're supposed to be a slave because you were bad in a previous life. Whatever scenario your mind begins to create for you, right? And so you begin to internalize your own oppression. Is this making sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, how about the next the text box right there? prisoner comes to truly believe that the captor is their friend, that he will not kill her, that in fact they can help each other, 
get out of this mess. The people on the outside trying to rescue her seem dangerous not and not her allies. Outsiders are going to harm the captor, who is now her friend. The fact that the hostage taker could care less about her and would kill her is an instant in an instant is lost in the process of self-delusion. Yeah, so the fact that the hostage taker would care about less about her and would kill her in an instant is lost in the process of self-delusion. People that do and think things against their best interests have internalized their own oppression. America's kind of weird. You guys know that investment bankers pay a lower tax rate than you do, right? Because we believe that investment bankers magically create jobs and they should pay less in taxes than we should. Right? So oftentimes we have women from the West right, that go off to Muslim countries that meet women where the full burqa. You guys know what the burqa is, right? That's where they have the little slit right there and everything is covered up completely. Now, the burqa is not part of the Quran. Nowhere in the Quran does it say you must wear a burqa. It's a cultural thing. Right? So educated women from the West meet women from the Arabic countries in these different conferences. And oftentimes the women from the West will say, please, Take off your burqa and fight for your rights. You're a second-class citizen in your own country. You can't legally vote in your country. You can't legally drive a car in your country. You can't legally ride a bicycle in your country, right? And so nine times out of ten, what does the woman with the burqa say back to the woman from the West? I love my burqa. It makes me feel special. I don't need to vote. My husband votes for me. I don't need to drive a car. My brother drives a car for me. I don't want to ride a bicycle because that's not ladylike. Is this making sense? Mm -hmm. They've internalized their own oppression. All right, how about the bottom paragraph there? The people that do? Uh, many addicts. Many addicts identify with their drug of choice, like an abused woman identifies with her abusive husband. She says, he beats me up a bit, but I know he loves me. I know that things will change. It won't always be like this. Anybody ever hear someone talk similar to that? <laughs> so, woman comes into my office with a black eye, right? Now, you guys know my philosophy on men, right? I can judge any man by the condition of his woman. What does that mean? It means that if you show up in my office and your girlfriend or your wife or your mom's got a black eye, I'm not fucking impressed with you, right? So the guy was on probation for his third DUI and he's with his wife and he hasn't worked in five years and they got a four-year-old kid, right? So she's sitting in my office. Imagine if, know, you, know what you guys know about Stockholm Syndrome right now. Imagine if I would have said to this woman, your husband is a loser. He's never going to work again. There's a 400% higher chance your kid's going to be an alcoholic. Grab your kid and run as fast as you can from this man before he destroys your life even further. If I was to say that out loud, what would she probably say back to me? You're crazy. He's a fantastic guy. And oh, by the way, this black guy, I said some silliness to deserve it, but I'm going to watch my words more carefully next time, and he won't punch me in the face. And by the way, he's going to be sober. He's going to go to AA tonight. Unsophisticated, right? So I look at both of them, and I say, there seems to be some concerns in your relationship. That's a reasonable statement to make out loud when you got a black guy in my office, right? Then I say to the wife, I say to her, what concerns you about your relationship? That's not even a loaded question. And she begins to think. She goes, well, I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure. Every time when I come home, I'm constantly worried. Is he drinking? Is he not drinking? Should I say something to him about his drinking? Right? I say this question. What would a healthy relationship feel like for you? Key question. What would a healthy relationship feel like for you? She begins to think. She becomes introspective. She goes, well, it would feel like when I first began to date him, I would feel special. 
I would feel that I could come home and tell him about my day, and he'd talk back to me like a peer, and we'd be able to share these experiences together, and I would feel cared for, I would feel cherished. That's deep. That's his question. If you had a magic wand and could wave it over your husband, what would be different about him? That's some deep shit, right? Mm -hmm. She begins to tear up. She goes, well, he'd go to AA and stop drinking. Remember, as she hears herself speak, she learns what she believes. That's deep. As she hears herself speak, she learns what she believes. If they're my words, she'll entrench against them. But if they're her words, they become her truth. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. All right, cool. Who wants to read on page two, starting off with sadly? Thank you, Pete. Sadly, when family and friends tell the vulnerable victim your heroin is killing you, your alcohol is killing you, can't you see what has happened to your life? The victim and addict who expects to say, wow, that's true, I need to stop this shit, hmm. actually begins to embrace their captor and drug even tighter. Even though their drug of choice is destroying them, abusing them, and making them look stupid, they've so entrenched themselves and are in such denial that they begin to believe that the people talking bad about their drug of choice are actually the enemy. Yes, it's called entrenchment, right? So I worked with an ex-girlfriend of mine. We were in high school together. We were very close, and she ended up getting married to a guy. We were always on good terms, you know, and she married this guy. He was an alcoholic, and they got divorced, and they had two kids together. So one of her kids, we're going to call him Johnny. Johnny was a really talented wrestler. He was an all-state wrestler, and he was actually a mixed martial artist. And he was 19 years old, and he had a local welterweight title belt, which is a pretty big deal. He's a pretty tough guy. He's 190 pounds outside the cage and 175 inside the cage. He's a dangerous kid. So mom brings him into my office with his girlfriend. So Scriber's girlfriend. His girlfriend is on a full-ride scholarship to Wayne State University. She's very, very intelligent. She doesn't drink or get high, okay? And, and, she's a big fan. The mother is a big fan of his girlfriend, right? And uh, she's also a ring card girl. She's really cute, you know what I mean? And so, you know, Johnny's got the best girlfriend. Her name is Mary. And mom comes in the office. And now it's Johnny's second DUI. And he's got two MIPs. And he's only 19 years old. What do you guys think about this guy possibly having an alcohol problem? It's pretty high, right? Okay. So they come into my office. And I welcome Mary and Johnny and mom. They say, welcome to my office. You know, really concerned. Johnny, we got to get you ready for court. We got to do an evaluation for court. Got to get you squared away. Do an education program for court. Right? And uh, Johnny's kind of looking at me, and uh, Mary says, can I speak up? I want to say something. And I say, of course, Mary, what do you want to say? And so Mary looks at Johnny, and she looks him right in the eyes, and she goes, if you drink again, I will leave you. God, chill up my spine. I'm like, whoa, whoa, if you drink